This past year, Liberty University, the nation's largest evangelical university, made headlines when they invited Donald Trump to be their speaker at their annual convocation service. His message was clear in line with his years of experience in the business world. Uh, What he's learned to be successful in business, he says, is that in order to succeed, you need to learn to punish people who cross you. You need to do this, he says, in order to send a clear message to others who are around you not to mess with you if you have any hopes of being successful. Now, some Christians may have assumed that Liberty had invited Trump as Exhibit A on how you would not want to do business. Some might assume that this was a a contrast of sorts for the minds of all the students there between a more robust biblical model of leadership in business. But when Liberty was questioned as to why they would bring in such a rank unbeliever, a man who denies the gospel not only with his lips and, but also with his life, they surprisingly not only defended Trump, but defended his message. As a matter of fact, A representative from Liberty went on to publish an article the next month in Christianity Today summarizing Trump's message essentially as one which Christians need to learn, which was, he says, to get tough and always win in the end. That representative wholeheartedly affirmed that message because according to him, in the end, God always wins. And so you should go and do likewise, he says. In fact, he put forth as the prime example of this, Christ himself. What we need to do is toughen up, refuse to let people run over us. We need to learn the lessons of life from men like Donald Trump, straight out of Trump Tower, straight out of Wall Street, straight out of the boardrooms of America. We need to learn to get tough, let no one mess with us, and let no one cross us without paying a price. You know, the real frustrating thing in the whole deal is that liberty really seemed oblivious to what bothered most of us who claim the name of Christ. It's not whether or not we win in the end. Because quite honestly, we already know that. We're going to win. By the grace of God, by the power of the cross, we are victors in Christ. It's not whether or not we're going to win in the end. It's how we're going to win, right? Or or more to the point, what really frustrated a lot of us is what are we even trying to win? What are the values that drive our lives? What are the goals that we as distinct believers are after? What are we aiming for? whether it be in spiritual matters or even in the temporal and business affairs of this life. What exactly are we trying to win? And is it the same thing as the Donald Trumps of the world? You wonder how these kinds of evangelical believers would respond just in a simple reading of the Apostle Paul's text in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me just read this to you and you can imagine in your own hearts and minds how it all fits together. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go 
before, go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's not one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, and even your own brothers. Paul's dealing with battles that you will face, battles that you'll face sometimes with other believers. And as he talks about these battles between believers, he's really addressing these particular lawsuits that were arising in the Corinthian church. Lawsuits that had to do, no doubt, with business matters, contract matters, labor matters, whatever it might be. But instead of just sort of giving an absolute blanket prohibition, some sort of surface instruction, he really is issuing a rebuke to these believers primarily for failing to remember what their goals are in life. It's not all about holding on to your stuff. And it's not all about defending your rights. It's not about getting an edge on your challengers and trampling those who cross you. The chief goals are far more eternal, far more heavenly, and therefore call for heavenly values and heavenly discernment and really are all ultimately about heavenly rewards. We look at this passage this morning. Paul really raises, I believe, four concerns for these believers as they deal in battles amongst themselves with one another and really does it with a string of questions. There are very few statements in the entire passage, just a bunch of questions, almost in a sort of shock or surprise by the Apostle Paul that they would ever do this. But but within these questions, there are inherent rebukes and warnings as Paul is raising concerns for us as we deal with conflict among ourselves. The first concern that Paul really raises here for them is the fact that they were disregarding the danger in escalating their conflicts. As I said, particularly, these have to do with civil court cases. In other words, everything he says here isn't really an absolute prohibition about all courts. We know, for example, that God establishes governing authorities, Romans 13 tells us, for the punishment of those who do evil and the praise or the acquittal of those who do good. We know that in particular then, all criminal court cases where the state brings charges as a plaintiff are not really within the boundaries of what Paul has to say here. He's not telling us that we should somehow uh, exhibit civil disobedience in those cases, but What he's talking about is in those situations where the plaintiff and the defendant are perhaps two individual believers. It might be, as I said, issues of business. It might be issues of 
contract, it might be issues of property, whatever it might be, in all of those cases, Paul says, we as believers ought to be doing all we can to avoid the secular court system. And that's why the reason is really because there are in it inherent dangers. As he says later on at the end, I mean, it's already a loss for you if you go that route. And he expresses surprise that the Corinthians don't see the danger. I'm, he says, look, he says, when, when one of you has a grievance against another, you dare to go to law. That word dare is actually a word for disregarding some danger that might be out there. For example, it's used of the Pharisees whenever Jesus was being questioned in the courtyard of the temple. Over and over again, he not only resoundedly answered with profound wisdom the, the questions of the Pharisees, but in the end, he began to ask them questions which stumped them and exposed their foolishness so that when it was all said and done, the the biblical writer tells us they did not dare ask him anything publicly from that point. They knew the pitfalls. They understood that if they enter into that kind of debate and into that kind of situation, they're going to be made to look foolish. Or we read over in Jude 9 that Michael the archangel, whenever he was disputing for the body of Moses, he did not dare pronounce blasphemy and make a charge of condemnation against the devil. He knew that was the Lord's domain. And he knew the pitfalls and he knew the dangers to try to assume that kind of authority because he would be stepping down the same pathway as the devil himself. And so, so this word for dare means that you understand the dangers. You comprehend how, how uh, treacherous it could be to do something. Well, Paul says you don't. You dare to do this. You, you're going into these situations without any perception, it would seem, of all that could potentially be damaging to you and your spiritual life. See, one of the things the Corinthians needed to realize is when they went to court before these unbelieving judges, they were entering a system that operated by different rules with different goals and according to different values than anything that should have been a part of their worldview. That's really what Paul's talking about when he contrasts there at the end of verse 1, the unrighteous and the saints. That's not a, a particular statement about any single judge and his corrupt moral life. Paul is not singling out any particular one. He's really talking about their whole system. They all were governed by principles that were apart from God's righteous standards. They were governed by different Different goals by a temporal, worldly perspective. Not by the heavenly one. And not just that. Not only is the system governed by different roles, but virtually everything that surrounds the court system will push you and push you on the basis of things like self-interest, materialism, even vengeance. As court cases developed, you are tempted more and more to let pride and bitterness and resentment and malice take over. And the system that you're in will only encourage it. 
and not discourage it. Nothing you're doing in the end really has any basis at all in your relationship with God. It has its basis in the rules of this world. And even worse for the Corinthians, their particular system was rife with bribery. Cicero, who was the elder statesman who sort of who, uh, established the whole nature of, uh, of litigation in our modern society and, and human rights, was constantly complaining about the bribery that took place in the court system and the overlapping interests that, that were always there amongst the litigators and the judges and the participants. Those who, who did step forward to provide legal representation sometimes for clients did so out of a self-interest, a selfish ambition to advance their own careers by their own rhetoric. It was a place that was really a scene of salacious slander, unbridled language, character assassination, unjust deals, intimidation, scandal, and personal enmity. As we said, the overlapping interest between judges, advocates, and witnesses often precluded fair justice anyway. So the court system itself was viewed as an unsavory place, an unseemly place to be found, And there were dangers, not just from the influence of the environment, there were dangers that you would be associated with the patterns and the practices that came out of that. At least in Paul's day. And so there was an inherent danger, even as there is today, that at the end, the interest of the court case supersedes the interest of your own personal testimony and witness for Christ. They needed to perceive all the pitfalls and dangers that lurked down such a pathway. And Paul was shocked that they didn't. That they would still venture down that, ignoring the obvious God-given resource that was in front of them, which was the saints, the church. The faithful church is not fraught with these kinds of dangers. It's not governed by these kinds of values and agendas. Their agenda is God's kingdom, not their own. Their goal is His glory, not winning at all costs. Their standard is His righteousness, not what personally benefits them. And so Paul was, he was concerned that they disregarded all the dangers of the pathway they were choosing. Not only that, secondly, he says he was concerned that they were discounting the discernment of the church. He writes with a series of questions again, verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Now what he's really talking about here, of course, is adjudication, discernment, right? Making discriminating choices between what is fair, what is right, what is wrong. That's important to point out because some people want to read what Paul has to say here in light of sort of a general end-time condemnation. And in fact, we know the word judge can mean that in some cases. It has a general sense of simply condemning, as Christ will, all unbelievers at the end of the age. And they would suggest that that's really what Paul has in mind here. Even in verse 3, when he refers to judging angels, they would say, oh, that's just the condemnation of the fallen angels that we as believers one day will participate in. Well, the burden of proof really would lie on any such a person taking an interpretation that way. 
Because everything in the context draws parallels, not between some final condemnation that you and I are going to participate in, but in the responsibility that you and I will one day have for adjudication and mediation and arbitration and discernment in ruling over the world. I mean, it's, it's clear that is the parallel Paul's making here. That's the qualification to which he's appealing. Not that, as the Scripture indicates, that we will stand as witnesses one day when Christ comes to judge the world. He's not talking about our role simply as witnesses of the, the final judgment of the, of the earth. What he's talking about is the responsibility that we one day will have, the qualification that God will find within the believers to set them over the world and over angels. This is the comparison. This is a similarity he's highlighting. Not that one day we'll have a role in final condemnation. One day we'll have a role in adjudication. We'll have it in governing. We'll have it in oversight. We'll have it in ruling the world. I mean, this is, a, this is stated over and over again in Scripture. Daniel chapter 7 says that when the Ancient of Days comes, He will deliver over His kingdom and judgment, He says, to the saints. Or even Christ promising, promising His disciples in Matthew 19 that because they've been faithful along with Him, He will grant them special authority over their own people, ruling, He says, the twelve uh, from 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. They are making the parallel between judging and ruling. Paul says, even for us, 2 Timothy 2, if we endure, we too will reign together with Christ. In fact, Revelation chapter 5 gives a scene in heaven where there are 24 elders, we're told, and four living creatures, and they bow down before Christ, and they sing a new song to Him, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people, from God, uh, people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom, a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Couldn't be more clear. It is a part of God's design, it is a part of God's decree that we who are redeemed in this life will in the, in the renewal, in the restoration, in the millennial kingdom, we will serve as co-regents with Christ reigning over the earth. Earlier there in the book of Revelation, the Lord had even promised the saints at the church of Thyatira he says, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. As vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father. You see what he's talking about here? He's talking about rulership. Over a world that has been redeemed, but still inhabited by unredeemed people. A world in which, as Isaiah says, the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. A world in which God's rule and God's righteousness is established on the basis of Christ ruling from His throne. But just like Moses, whenever he himself was the representative of God among the community of Israel, brought alongside himself 70 others in God's wisdom to judge alongside of him, it is God's design that you and I would rule together with him. 
He says, with a rod of iron. Folks, that's not a reference to some sort of ethereal, mystical, or spiritual place in heaven. There's no need for a rod of iron in heaven. The rod of iron he's talking about is the real authority that will be decreed to believers. The real role that you and I will have in judging the earth. Revelation 20, I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom authority was given to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or the image who had not received the mark on their foreheads and they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Over and over and over again, we're given this promise in Scripture. That we are going to be entrusted one day with authority in His kingdom. In fact, in Matthew chapter 25, when Christ was teaching specifically in the Olivet Discourse about His second coming, He likened it to a man who had a, 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 man who had a, a piece of property, a man who had a kingdom, he says, who went away for a while. And while he was gone, he entrusted to his servants talents. And upon his return, it was those who were found faithful in those talents that he says will be entrusted with much. Those who are faithful with little, he said, will be entrusted with much. In other words, there is a direct correspondence between our faithfulness in this life and then a responsibility that will be given to us in the coming kingdom. That was Christ's own teaching on the kingdom. This is, what, this is the parallel that Paul's drawing. This is what he's saying. Don't you realize that you're going to be given responsibility in the coming age? Don't you realize that you're going to rule over the world? You're going to judge the world? And not only that, you're going to judge angels? In comparison to all of that, Paul says, the matters that we're talking about here are, ought to be looked at as trivial. I mean, if you're going to be judging angels, he says in verse 3, how much more are the matters of this life? It's pretty clear what Paul has in mind. That there's a future age that's going to dramatically change things. It's not the age right now. Some people read those statements about us reigning together with Christ and they just sort of assume that that's all sort of wrapped up in our current experience. Well, it's very clear from the Apostle Paul, this clearly is not the case right now. As a matter of fact, back in chapter 5, verse 12, Paul had made the point explicit in 12 and 13 of chapter 5, we have no role in judging the world. We have no role in judging those outside. That's not something that's for us right now in this age. That's clearly not part of God's plan. But by the time you get to chapter 6, Paul says it will be. It will be one day. Now the point of all this is if you're going to be given the authority in the age to come, the authority not just over the church but over the world and even over angels, if you're going to be given that authority, can't you deal with at least... These matters in the present age between believers. Can't you at least deal with these matters which ought to be, by comparison, trivial? And the implication is that while the authority that we might have in those days to come will be dramatically different, 
the knowledge and the basis of that authority will be no different. In other words, we have all the resources to make the right kind of discerning judgments in this age, right now, that we will have in that age. Now, of course, we will be in glorified bodies. Of course, we will be completely and forever removed from the power and even the body of sin. And, of course, our hearts and our minds will be completely yielded to the Lord. And so it will be justified in the, in the uh, entrusting of the church to these greater responsibilities. But, but Paul's point here is, we have everything now to make the right kind of discerning judgments now that we will then. As a matter of fact, remember back in chapter 2, verse 16, Paul told us that in the revealed Word of God, we have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. In other words, the closest thing that you have to the standard of righteousness, which one day will rule over the entire world, whether it be the business world, whether it be the financial world, whether it be the agricultural world, whether it be property law, whether it be civil law, whether it be criminal law, you have everything that, all, uh, that, that, that will be used in the adjudication of the entire world, all the affairs of the earth, you have it now. The same truth, the same Word of God that governs our lives. You shouldn't discount that. You shouldn't discount that. That sort of highlights Paul's third concern here. That in light of all that, their actions were actually discrediting their own spiritual maturity. So, you know, if this is true, what I say in verses 2 and 3 is true. If you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? Paul's once again asking questions. Just asking questions. But this question in verse 4 is particularly biting. Why do you lay such cases before those who have no standing? Before, in the church. They have no standing. Or as the New American Standard says. They, have no, they are of no account. To the church. Nor should they be. They have no standing. Nor should they. In other words. If these unbelievers. Who fill the court systems of the world. And the boardrooms. And the, and the uh, civil systems of the world. If they are brought into the church. As unbelievers. They would not be recognized. They would have no credentials that would commend them for leadership in any way in the church. They would have no voice. They should have no voice. And so Paul is speaking here not about some official title. He's not suggesting that, that if you can find some man who has deacon alongside his name, then he's therefore qualified to also have judge by his name. He's not talking about some official position in the church. He's primarily referring to their spiritual standing. They are of no account. They have no standing because they don't possess the spiritual credentials. Either in general as a member of God's family or even more so as a leader, as a teacher, 
as a guide, as a judge. They'd never be looked to within the church for leadership. So the question is, why? Why then would you take these matters to them? Why would you look to their leadership? Well, for Paul, the answer is obvious. And he's been making it all the way through this book. Because at the end of the day, these people really love the wisdom of the world more than they love the wisdom of God. I mean, he said it over and over again. We've already seen it as we've gone through 1 Corinthians. I mean, for all the lip service that they give to God and to His Word, the reality is they valued the wisdom of the world more than the wisdom of God. And their insistence on taking their disputes outside the church was proof positive of where their heart really lied. What they were doing was showing that they valued wisdom, the wisdom available outside more than they valued the wisdom available inside. You say, well, that's right. I mean, I'll be honest. I look around my church. I don't really see people that I trust. I don't really see people that have the kind of wisdom and deal with the issues that I'm facing in life. Well, first of all, that might be quite a statement about your church and the kind of spiritual leadership you're placing yourself under. But more likely, it's quite a statement about you. It's quite a statement about the kind of wisdom you're seeking. It's quite a statement about what your goals are in life and what your purpose is and what value system you have and what authority you submit to and what your life is all about. It may not be that there's not wisdom inside your church. It may be that it's just not the kind of wisdom you value. Or the kind of wisdom you're seeking. You see, by their actions, these guys were making a strong, strong statement about where their heart was. They were making a strong statement about what they valued and what they did not. Sure, I mean, you're going to have weaknesses. Even in your church, you'll have leaders who are weak, maybe not fully experienced in every area or whatever it might be, but are they any greater than the weaknesses of the spiritual blindness and the hardness of heart and rebellion against God that you can find in a secular system? Are they any greater than the blindness to eternal rewards and eternal purposes and eternal values that a purely unbelieving judge, jury, and prosecutor would lead you down? In most cases, when you choose that path, it's saying more about you than it is about anything else. It's a discredit to your spiritual maturity. It's a discredit to what you thought you might be in terms of godliness. As a matter of fact, Paul uses one of the key words we've seen all the way through this passage. He says, is there not someone wise enough in your own midst? Surely, he says in verse 5, surely, I should say he implies in verse 5, Because these are the people, remember, who were always boasting of their wisdom. Paul says it in chapter 3, verse 18. He says it again in chapter 4, they were arrogant. He says it again in chapter 5, they were arrogant. Over in chapter 8, they were the ones who were going around, we have knowledge, we have knowledge. Paul says knowledge puffs up. You can go around all you want, talking about your spiritual maturity, talking about your knowledge, talking about your theology, but at the end of the day, this is where the rubber meets the road. When your things are on the line, 
who are you going to trust? So what these people were saying is there's no one wise enough, no one discerning enough within their own congregation who could serve as a mediator of their conflict. And that, at the end of the day, was incredibly indicting for them personally and corporately. And then finally, Paul gives perhaps the real point, the most grievous point in all this, is that what they were ultimately doing was defeating their own spiritual growth. To have lawsuits at all with one another, he says, is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? You yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. One of the things that disturbed Paul the most in this situation is that they seemed oblivious through it all to any real spiritual goals. They seemed to share, in other words, the same goals as the unbelieving world around them, which was primarily a concern with protecting their own rights and their own stuff. And the bottom line is, God's Word teaches us that when there are conflicts and when there are quarrels that arise among you, they are not primarily about your stuff. It's not what they're about. Your kids get in a fight. They're arguing over the last stick of gum. And if you think that somehow the, 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 the best way to approach that is get them to split it in two and be done with it, you've missed the real point. See, conflicts that arise among us is not primarily about our stuff. Unless you're talking about the stuff inside. You see, God is much more concerned with the stuff inside than He is the stuff outside, and He wants you to be. Jesus said it Himself, right? Luke 12, 15, life consists of more than the abundance of your possessions. You think life is all about that stuff on the outside? It's the stuff on the inside that really matters. And this is what bothered Paul, is that they were going about this process with seemingly no concern for the stuff on the inside. That is, in fact, the ones, that is, in fact, the thing that needs to be guarded most vigorously. That's what you need to be really concerned about. Not protecting your rights, your property, your business, your whatever, but protecting your relationship to God, protecting your own heart, protecting your own walk with Him. Paul says, so it's already a defeat. You got lawsuits, one of those, it's done. You guys have already chosen the pathway that is all wrong focused. It's already defeat for you that you've already placed all your material stuff ahead of your spiritual stuff. It's already a defeat for you that you've already prioritized what is around you rather than what is inside of you. He says in the end, why not rather be defrauded? Why not rather suffer wrong? That, in other words, would be better than resorting to a secular court system. Now, don't read that and and assume that what Paul's calling for you to do is that the first sign of conflict, just to lay down and allow people to take advantage of you over and over and over. He's not saying that it's preferable to sit idly by as a victim and watch injustice go uh, go along all around you. Scripture would tell us that we as believers ought to be provoked by injustice. We ought to seek a standard of righteousness. We ought to to labor for that. 
But what he's saying is, it's preferable to seek a pathway of justice within the church. The preferable matter is to deal with these things according to righteous principles. And what he has in mind here, I believe, is a situation where a plaintiff has brought in others within the church to help examine some grievance. They've sought God's help by prayer. They've submitted themselves to accountability. They've asked others within the church to come alongside of them as mediators, as intercessors, as prayer support, as witnesses and teachers, as uh, exhorters and encouragers, and in some cases, referees if necessary. They've asked people in the church to come alongside and help arbitrate some of these difficulties. And in the end... Either the mediators have not decided completely in your favor or they have decided you've been vindicated by the church but the defendant doesn't accept the plea. Paul says in such cases it would be better to just let yourself be defrauded. You've done what God's asked. You've complied with His rules. You've sought righteousness. You've submitted yourself to His word. You've sought wisdom where you could find it. You leave the rest to Him. This is God's design. That when you have a conflict between a fellow believer, even in matters, mundane matters, business matters, contract matters, issues of payment and property, that within the church you find a fellow believer or a group of believers who can serve alongside of you, not with a primary goal, of protecting your stuff, but with a primary goal of shepherding your heart to do what pleases God. This is Paul's concern. It's obviously not the concerns of the world. That's why he makes the contrast in verse 8. You know what you're doing? You're not suffering. You're inflicting. You're not being defrauded. You're defrauding. He says, you're not, you're not suffering wrong. You're wronging others. You're doing exactly what human nature in the world would tell you you're supposed to do. Trump says, in the end, you need to learn how to win. Paul says, in the end, you need to learn how to lose. You need to learn how to lose. For God's will. For God's glory. 1 Thessalonians 5, See no one repays evil for evil, but always seek good to one another and to everyone. 1 Peter 2.19, this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, it's a gracious thing and finds favor in the sight of God. For Christ himself has set an example for you to follow in his footsteps. Paul says in Thessalonians, excuse me, Philippians chapter 3, I count all things lost. So that I can know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul says, I'll lose anything. I'll lose anything. If I can maintain my fellowship with God. If I can know something more of his sufferings. I'll count it all loss. This is God's design. Our primary concern is not the protecting of our possessions or our rights. It's the protecting of our relationship. First of all with God. Second of all with other believers. And protecting 
the testimony of Christ, our Savior, before the world. Psalm 133, verse 1 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Don't read that verse and just sort of assume he's talking about some mystical place where conflict never happens. Let me tell you, that place doesn't exist. And if you've been seeking it, you'll never find it. What he's talking about is the blessedness, the pleasantness of a place where mature believers, in spite of having conflict, work through that conflict with the knowledge and discernment of God. And they find, at the end, their relationships strengthened and God honored. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for the reminder in so many ways of how important the stuff inside is as opposed to the things outside. Lord, I pray that you would reorient our goals and our values and align them with yours. Give us discernment and wisdom to know how to deal with these conflicts and these battles. Give us ready hearts to submit them always to you. Give us a testimony before a watching world of mature believers who in the, the ongoing struggles of this life learn in submission to our Savior to work out peaceable resolutions for your glory and for our blessing. We pray these things in Christ's name.